0: Thank you. January 12th of this brand new year marked the eighth anniversary of the final show for what was the last real competition to compete against the UFC. No offense to Bellator, they're doing just fine with that promotion's creator Scott Coker at their helm. I'm talking, of course, about Strike Force. The red brand was largely influential and made a big impact as the sports number two show following the death of Pride. So today, in their honor, we're going to take a look at what made them so damn special and why they are sorely missed. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are the 10 greatest things about Strike Force. Number 10. Strike Force 1. Originally a brand associated with kickboxing shows in the 90s, when MMA was finally legalized in California in 2006, thanks to the sudden boom in the sport caused by the UFC's ultimate fighter, the promotions founder Scott Coker shifted their focus from KB to MMA, and was the first to put on a sanctioned event in the state. Coker and Strike Force were there on the ground floor, and San Jose their base of operation. They beat the UFC to the punch on that one. The first Zupa show would happen over a month after Strike Force 1, in fact. They even had a bigger draw. UFC 59 held an arrowhead pond, would see 13,000 fans. Strikeforce Shamrock vs Gracie at the HP Pavilion, 18,000. Impressive as hell for a first time event. Of course, the seeds had been sown long before March 10th, 2006, as Coker was a well-known commodity in the area. But this wasn't some rinky-dink regional show. Scott came out firing. Frank Shamrock, one of the UFC's greatest champions, coming off three years away from the sport, he still hadn't lost since before his UFC run even took place. He would headline against the legendary Caesar Gracie, a highly anticipated fight that had bad blood brewing for years. Cam Rock and Gracie aren't exactly the worst two names to headline your first MMA show. In addition, Clay Guida, Josh Thompson, Kung Lee's MMA debut, Gil Melendez, and Nate Diaz were featured on the main card. Strikeforce's first show was in a lot of ways consistent with what their brand would represent for its entire run. They're a huge part of why California is one of the hubs for MMA in the United States, and it started with this show. Number 9. EA Sports MMA It may be one of the reasons that the incredible Fight Night games don't exist anymore, which is definitely a bummer, but the precursor to the current run of EA UFC video games was for all intents and purposes, a Strike Force game. The debut trailer was shown, in fact, at Strike Force Fedor vs. Rogers, fittingly with the two headliners going at it in digital form. While the UFC wasn't fond of playing well with others as it pertained to their fighters' likenesses in products that aren't strictly UFC, a perfect example being the war they had over Randy Couture's involvement with this very game, Strike Force had no such qualms, and as such, a ton of their fighters were featured on the roster. 75% of the roster, in fact. 47 out of 63 featured fighters. The rest comprised of legends not bound to the UFC, besides The Natural, standouts from Japan, and awesomely Eddie Alvarez, who at the time was in Bellator tearing it up. The game was well-received by critics, getting many scores of 8 and 9 out of 10 from major publications, nearly comparable to the beloved UFC Undisputed 3, which would come out two years later. Please don't kill me, Tom, for comparing these two games. I'm not saying EA MMA is a masterpiece, But with Electronic Arts being one of the biggest game publishers on the planet, the project was a huge win for Strikeforce and allowed that dev team to dip their toes into the MMA waters before starting up the EA UFC series, which benefited from their earlier experience. Thanks, Strikeforce. Number 8. The Nashville Brawl. Gentlemen, we're on national television. Alright, so at the time, it was most definitely considered a black eye on the sport. Strikeforce Nashville aired on CBS. As Gus Johnson pointed out famously, that's national TV. The three-fight show was going terribly by casual fan standards CBS drew in 2.9 million viewers, and most of them aren't going to understand three fights that are five-round decisions that in several cases featured heavy grappling. But they sure got their money's worth after the main events if they stuck around. Jake Shields was being interviewed after defending his middleweight title against Dan Henderson, a huge victory when MMA's Loki appeared next to him seemingly out of nowhere, Jason Miller. Mayhem had lost to Shields less than a year prior in a bout for the vacant middleweight title, and he was inquiring about a rematch in the middle of the show, during Jake's big moment in the CBS spotlight. Shields wasn't too fond of this and neither were his friends, the Scrap Pack. You know, Nick and Nate Diaz, Gil Melendez. What preceded was basically just Miller getting stomped into the ground by a whole bunch of angry people, while Gus Johnson desperately tried to regain control of the broadcast. As you can imagine, the brawl was big news and just more reason for people who hated MMA to pile on top. But you have to admit, it was entertaining. And hell, if it happened in 2021, we'd be talking about how good it was for business like Khabib and Connor's post-fight dust-up. Sometimes these things happen in MMA. A lot of testosterone in the cage. Number seven, the Melendez Thompson title trilogy. A NorCal rivalry with metal on the line all three times, these two had three absolute wars. Gil Melendez and Josh Thompson were quintessential strike force. They represented the strong upper tier talent pool the promotion had from its inception to the UFC absorbing it. Thompson would lose the inaugural bout for the division's title against Clay Guida, Melendez taking it from Clay in his next fight. After a single defense, the two would beat for the first time in 2008. The least memorable of their trilogy, Thompson scored a UD win, only the second ever loss in Gil's career. A year and a half later, the two would finally meet again after several failed attempts to put the bout together. By this time, Melendez had captured interim gold, he would unify the titles in their second encounter at Strike Force Evolution, a 25-minute masterpiece that would crescendo in the fifth, Sports Illustrated's Round of the Year 2009, and seen by many outlets as the Fight of the Year period. When Josh and Gil met the third time, Melendez had successfully defended his title three times. People were arguing that he was the best lightweight in the world. Their final battle was a back-and-forth banger that would be the last bout of Gil's Force run scoring a narrow split decision win before moving on to the UFC. As trilogies go in MMA, this one is often forgotten by fans and criminally underrated. Seen as second tier at the time simply because the letters UFC weren't attached to it, this rivalry deserves more love. Number six, Nick Diaz versus Paul Daly. It's considered by many the greatest single-round fight in MMA history, and you cannot talk about how awesome Strikeforce was without mentioning Nick Diaz versus Paul Daly. The setup was simple. Diaz, the established champion, one of the promotion's biggest stars, a ground fighter who had no problem standing, and delivering death by a thousand cuts. Daly, a knockout artist with Simtex in his hands, 29 KO-TKOs heading into the bout between his MMA and kickboxing careers. Both unbeaten in the promotion, both exciting as hell. This is one of those instances where the hype was big, but the fight Over-delivered on its promise, a roller coaster of holy shit for the entire four minutes and 57 seconds of its existence. The first minute and a half was split between Diaz talking shit and nearly being finished. Nick rallied back and was about to put away Daily when he shot in on a takedown. Oh, you're a wrestler. (laughs) Diaz was then almost stopped a second time. Did I mention this is only a single round? With 30 seconds left, Nick rose from his grave and finished off Simtex with a TKO. Seriously, does MMA get much better than this? An absolute classic. One of the fights that made Diaz as the star he was when he entered the UFC. More on that in just a bit though. Number five, the heavyweight GP and the rise of Daniel Cormier. One thing that Scott Coker has always been brilliant at is hitting us with those nostalgia feels, and how better to drum up all those memories of our beloved pride than having a good old-fashioned Grand Prix. Everybody loves the GP, especially a heavyweight one. This eight-man tourney was stacked. Fedor, Bigfoot, The Ream, Fabrizio Verdum, Andrei Arlovsky, Sergei Karatanov, Josh Barnett, Brett Rogers. Now, there were some delays. What was meant to take all of 2011 took that and a decent chunk of 2012 to finish, but it was still good old-fashioned fun. The story of the quarters was, of course, Fedor falling a second time, now to Bigfoot Silva. Reem beat Verdoom. the other side of the bracket wasn't as interesting as Barnett murdered his way to the finals. Then something awesome and unexpected happened. Bigfoot Silva was set to take on Overeem when Alistair was suddenly pulled from the event a month before the show. That doesn't sound great. In fact, there was this whole weird issue between the promotion and his management. Reem would be snatched up by the UFC to fight Brock Lesnar, though. He was just fine. But Silva needed another opponent now. How about this new guy, Daniel Cormier? He's an Olympian, but he doesn't have a ton of MMA experience yet, sure, why not? A massive underdog, DC shocked the world when he KO'd Bigfoot in the first round and then defeated Barnett to win the tournament. What a legend, DC had arrived, and the rest, as they say, is history. Number four, the legend of Nick Diaz. There are a lot of fans who still to this day don't get the hype behind Nick Diaz. Once he re-entered the UFC in 2011, he got one win, was defeated in two title fights, and what the hell was that Anderson Silva about? But you have to look at his strike force run. There are two things about Nick that drew people in. One was, of course, his exciting style. To Diaz, the ground was meant for submission attempts, not control, and if he was on the feet, he was throwing insane volume, overwhelming his opponents with flurries, while he himself absorbed incredible amounts of punishment. His six strike force bouts saw six wins and five finishes. He he would defend his title three times before re-entering the UFC. The reason he was immediately paired with GSP is because hardcores had been begging to see the fight, the GSP hunter as he was coined on forums. The other aspect of Diaz that appealed to so many was his truly anti-establishment mentality. He was Stone Cold Steve Austin, but in real life. There was no authority he didn't have a problem with, and he let it be known, flipping off Shamrock at their presser, the strike force brawl, all the trash talk. He was on the outs with the promoters, the media, it was Nick versus the world. Dana White had said many times he would love to have Nick back, but he's too wild. Imagine Dana saying that today of anybody. The legend of Nick Diaz was largely born of his time in Strike Force, and it was awesome. Number 3. Fedor Loses you want to talk about one of the biggest moments in the history of the sport. Fedor truly losing a bout for the first time. Everyone remembers where they were when they heard that The Last Emperor had fallen. I say heard because this was on Showtime. Emilia Nico's promotional debut against Brett Rogers on CBS saw 5.5 million viewers. Monster numbers. His second fight was on a premium channel that didn't have The Sopranos or Boardwalk Empire. 492,000 people tuned into Showtime and saw history. To put that in perspective, I picked a random card from that same year, UFC Fight Night 12, 22 million people watched Gray Maynard versus Nate Diaz, so it's safe to say some of us missed a fight we probably would have watched. After nearly a decade of dominating the heavyweight division, Fedor found himself caught in a triangle armbar against Fabricio Verdum a minute into the bout, from which he could not escape. That final sequence felt like 13 years. It seemed as if there was no way this was actually happening. This was Fedor we're talking about. When the tap finally came, it sent shockwaves through the sport. Emelianenko was at the time the best heavyweight in the world, but between this loss and two following it all under the strike force banner the paradigm was shifting strike force had produced one of the most memorable moments in mma history what more could you ask for number two the rise of women's mma we didn't know it at the time, and certainly Elite XC should get a bit of credit here too, as they were the first promotion to put a women's bout on live TV at Elite XC Destiny between Gina Carano and Julie Kedzie, but Strikeforce deserves a place in history for really ushering forward into the mainstream women's mixed martial arts. You have to remember that at the time, Dana White was adamant that the UFC would never put on a women's bout. When are we gonna see women in the uh, UFC, man? Never. Hey, never? Never. <laughs> and while Strikeforce was a strong number two, with their existence ending in 2013, had they not peaked the 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 UFC's interest in Ronda Rousey, women's MMA could have likely still been relegated to smaller regional promotions, never getting the boom that it had since Rousey took the MMA world by storm. Strikeforce went, Hard. Their first ever women's title fight, Cyborg vs. Karano, it was the headliner for their Showtime event. By the way, it did better numbers than Fedor vs. Verdum, again, to prove my point. Karano was the biggest star women's MMA had ever had, and Chris absolutely dominated her. Cyborg would continue her incredible run at featherweight, tearing through the legendary Marlos Kunin, Jan Finney, and Hiroka Yamanaka, before being stripped for anabolic steroids, establishing herself as one of the most dominant forces in the sport. Meanwhile, the bantamweight division would catch fire, following title reigns by Sarah Hoffman and Marlos Kunin, Misha Tate would become champion and start a rivalry with the hottest prospect in the sport, Ronda Rousey, culminating with the rowdy one capturing gold and changing Dana White's mind about women's MMA. Strikeforce brilliantly promoted these divisions and deserves a ton of credit for getting us to Joanna versus Wei Li Zhang. Number 1. All the Incredible Talent. At the end of the day, MMA at nearly any level can be fantastic to watch, but what has always separated one promotion from another is truly elite level stars, and Strikeforce had a ton. Yes, at the time, many felt the UFC would and could crush their entire roster, but time has given us a ton of perspective here, and some of the best talent to ever enter the UFC came from Strikeforce. We always talk about how Pride ruled the world, how their roster was unmatched, but you can make a strong argument for Scott Coker's baby. We've talked about Fedor, DC, and Diaz, Melendez, Rousey, and Cyborg. But there were so many more. Overeem, Gegard Masassi Dan Henderson, Jake Shields, Jacare, Luke Rockhold, Yoel Romero, Robbie Lawler, Tyron Woodley. This roster was absolutely ridiculous. It shows you just how important those three letters UFC really are, because so many of the top talents from this promotion that were absorbed into the UFC went on to be the elite of the elite. In 2015, five of the UFC's champions were from Strikeforce. Rousey, Rockhold, Cormier, Verdum, and Robbie Lawler. Of the 20 title fights that went down that year, eight of them featured strike force talent nearly half strike force may have always been the second fiddle to the ufc during their brief run but the impact they made on the sport and the massive talent they brought to zufa llc is something to be remembered fondly and missed greatly a big big thank you to ben rosette who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his instagram and twitter page at ben rosette Huge shout out to the legendary once and future King Tomas Welsh for editing this video together. Follow him on Instagram at BigBeatVisual. That's Beat as in the band from Doug and not a forceful strike. Thanks for watching. Please give us a like and subscribe. We've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below. Follow On Point MMA on Twitter and have yourself a wonderful day.